hosted by your mans, me, Brother G2, National Director of the Journey for Justice Alliance. It's good to see y'all here. Check it, you can reach us at J4J underscore USA on Twitter. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Journey for Justice Alliance. And yo, give me a call at 777-9311. Some of y'all know what I mean by that. So I want to officially say, you know, Habarigani, Peace, Hotep, what up, though? Again, this podcast is important because we know that community organizing has been a staple. If you look at basically every right that we have in this world, a woman's right to vote, a woman's right to lead a corporation, our right to be able to go into a Walgreens without somebody stopping us and saying, nigga, get out. You know, every right that we have in this country is a direct result of community organizing. But we know that historically in the United States, for Black people, the response to our organizing has been violent from the reforms that we made during Reconstruction as we took elected office and we began to build cities. The response to that work was lynch mobs and burning down cities. We know that in places like Chicago in 1919, the response to Black people who had evacuated the South and were setting up prosperous communities on the South side of Chicago was the 1919 race riots. So there's a long history, including the civil rights and Black power movement, of a violent response to grassroots community organizing. And in Chicago, nothing stands out more than the uh, murder of Fred Hampton, who was a community organizer, who at the age of 14 had actually desegregated a pool in Maywood, Illinois, and at age 21 was the youngest president of the largest chapter of the Black Panther Party in the United States. Brother did a lot of work, of course, to develop the free breakfast program, free medical clinics, but also had begun to politicize street organizations and had organized truces where Blackstone Rangers and Devil Disciples had actually stopped killing each other and were becoming politicized. So the response to this brother's excellent work was to murder him on December 4th, 1969. And that's one of many cases where the response to Black people speaking power to power has been violent repression by the country that we live in. So in many cases around the country, we see in Black communities, we do social services, you know, vital social services. We do job programs. We feed people. We have after-school programs and all that good stuff, right? But often those organizations are funded by the very system that we have to hold accountable. So the ability of us to be able to come together around an issue, build strategy with the people directly impacted, and move to bring resources and opportunity to our communities is limited because in many Black communities, there is no infrastructure to do real community organizing. So... As you all may know, I served the Journey for Justice Alliance as the national director, but I'm a proud son of the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization. I served on the board of COCO from 1993 to 2006. I was the board president from 2000 to 2006. And in 2007, I joined as the education organizer. And COCO, which is our acronym, is the oldest Black-led grassroots community organization in the city of Chicago. It's been around since 1965. And in many cases is in the eye of the storm in many of the fights for our access to basic quality of life institutions. So I'm very clear that 
is lonely <laughs> in regards to being able to have people that look like you that are prepared to organize. So that's one of the reasons why Journey for Justice Alliance is so important because it is a network of black and brown led grassroots community organizations around the country that are centered around education justice. So today, the theme of our show is don't sweat the technique, the artistic science of community organizing. You know, I'm gonna always bring some golden era hip hop into it. Uh, the greatest MC that ever lived, Rakim Allah. And I have two, I think, stellar guests on our show today. <laughs> the two folks are Maria Harmon. Maria's hometown is Lake Charles, Louisiana. But she's she keeping up all types of trouble in New Orleans and all throughout Louisiana. So this young sister is the co-director of a group called Step Up Louisiana, which is a relatively new organization, but is really doing an amazing job of galvanizing people in New Orleans around education and around economic justice. And my other guest is my brother from another mother. So Jalita has been an organizer since he's 19 years old, and I think he's like 70 now. No, I'm kidding. The brother is in his 40s. So he's been an organizer since he was, you know, leaving high school. So to both of y'all, welcome to On The Ground Podcast. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. So look, if you could just introduce yourself to the people. And so why don't we start with Maria? I've been organizing since I was about 16 years old. I first started in my church in Lake Charles, and then it just progressed from there, organizing at my school at Southern University in Baton Rouge. I started working under the Democratic Party. I really started to learn the importance of what it means to turn out people to vote and for them to be well-informed, especially young Black college students. And I never forget the first time I met John Lewis, I was working on the Mary Landry campaign. He came down to campaign for her. And he and I had a conversation and people were bragging on me about the work I was doing, about how many students I got registered to vote. And he just looked at me and said, people are going to try to discourage you. It's going to get hard, but you keep pushing. Mm. And I never forgot that. And when I moved to New Orleans in 2015, this really goes into where I had my great awakening with community organizing, per se. It really went with how the people who was willing to do the work felt. They really led the direction. And that's where I really started to see what grassroots leadership means in real practice, you know, because coming from political organizing, where it's essentially really transactional in some cases. It really depends on who the organizer is to develop like a long sustaining relationship with people in those settings. But with community organizing, it is a bit deeper, you know, especially just standing strong on the issues and developing what those issues are. So when I started connecting with elders in New Orleans East, they really started to open my eyes to the issues in school transportation they started to raise awareness about the rigged system and the central enrollment system called the One App. They say it's about choice, but it's really about chance of getting your kid into a good school. And we really started to develop a campaign and, and develop an issue that was really questioning the authenticity of school choice in New Orleans. And it was a colleague of mine that reached out and just said, hey, do you want to meet for coffee and talk about possibly starting an organizing project? And that was my co-founder and co-director, Ben Zucker. And he and I started 
Step Up Louisiana together. We first started meeting in November 2016, and then we founded Step Up on February 7th, 2017. And so, sister, folks may not know that New Orleans is the only school district that is 100% charter. This just happened, you know, when the board, despite massive community uh, resistance, the board elected to turn McDonald 35 over to a charter operator. So now New Orleans is completely charter school. But you all haven't given up. You've done some work at the state level and you're doing a lot around charter accountability. So what makes you realize that community organizing is a purpose for you? I really feel like community organizing is a purpose in my life because it really enables me to be a driver of change. It helps me to really live in my calling to just essentially help people, listen to people, build relationships with people. Another thing that's required in organizing, which is what I've really cultivated a skill around, is patience. People love to rush something, but the thing about justice, it's a journey. It's a process in a way that's not going to be overnight, and it's something that really tests your spirit. You know, and in this work, I really started to develop more of a strong relationship with God and just uh, remain spiritually in tune and just remembering where your core values lie as well. Like you have to know who you are and who's you are doing this work. And I just feel blessed to have a progression in my career in this work and it really makes some solid impact. Now, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. You did say that justice is a journey, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> in other words, if we're on a journey for justice. I couldn't have paid you to say anything better than that. Good looking out, sister. <laughs> Thank you, Maria. And it's an honor to have you on the show, sister, as one who's watched you grow from disgruntled organizer <laughs> at an organization that was moving in the wrong direction to see you struggle with racial justice issues uh, while building an organization. And like you say, in a little less than two years to build a group that you know, school board members are nervous about you. The privatizers are nervous because they know that you all can mobilize. I just want to, you know, tip my hat to you, sister, and say good work. So next up, uh, my brother, Jalita Bennett. So Jalita, best man at my wedding. Me and this brother go back so far. I don't know if y'all understand. I mean, me and this brother was roommates for seven tumultuous years. Would that describe it, Jalita? Tumultuous? That's great. That's great. <laughs> So, look, I believe in my heart of hearts that one of the most brilliant organizers in the United States is Jalita Bennett. His knowledge of people, his depth of understanding uh, what drives people and what drives people's intentions has been, you know, almost like a fog light for our work and helping us, you know, avoid mistakes and things of that nature, helping us peak people's game. His nickname is the Ghetto Priest because all the brothers... Even the brothers that are struggling, when they know they need help, they look to this brother. And they look to him because of his consistency. So, Jalita, you'll probably never hear me say that again. So I just wanted to just give you your props and just see if you could share with people again kind of, um, you know, who you are and, and what led you to do the work that you do today. You know, I appreciate you for letting me share with this great opportunity. And I'm humbled by the fact that what we're doing with the work you're doing, G2, Toot your horn is building a strong national and international network of folk like us who need to toot our own horns, but from the aspect of we all we got. Our people 
who are some of the greatest people on this planet Earth as far as black folk struggling in urban centers throughout this country, voices always get pushed down because others know the threat. And the threat is that the people who often are shackled are told that your voices don't matter, that you're screaming too much, or that you're too angry, or that you got to learn how to play the game, are the ones that have the answers to balancing this earth and making this world right. So when we rise up with like young people with Black Lives Matters, young people with some of the movements that have happened recently around police brutality throughout this country, we get a glimpse at our power, but then the powers that are right now visible, because we are the power. The visible powers that be, the ones that we call the powers that be, they have an advantage at shutting out our light and when we get that glimpse of our potential. But we're changing all that, so I'm not going to stay in the, on that space. But so, like G2 said, we've been in this work together since 1990, 91. We have been called to this work by our mentors, people who have served greatly from work that they did in grassroots community in Detroit and in Chicago from the 60s on. They didn't stop. They didn't get ran underground and stopped. Not to say that those who had to fear for their lives because a lot of things that happened with Black Power Movement and other movements. But anyway, so our elders and our mentors told us it was simple. It wasn't about talking. It wasn't about waiting till you get no degrees. They told us, if you're real about this, get busy. Go to a community and find out how you can be not just of service, but you can help folk who don't need you to advocate for them. Because I hate that word, advocacy. I hate folks saying they're advocates of the poor. That's just pimp hustle game to say black folk are going to be in a box and people are going to always profit off our misery. So anyway, we got into community organizing at the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization and we learned how to work around a couple issues. So these are the issues that we came in on. One is being, of course, public education, which soon turned to the fight against privatization, affordable housing preservation in Kenwood and Oakland. The organization started in 65 because of an issue of being a lakefront community off the lakefront of Chicago, one of the nicest, most beautiful areas were inhabited in the 50s and back by other ethnic groups. White folk, Asians lived in this area and Mm -hmm. it's anchored by the University of Chicago on the south and downtown on the north. It's a beautiful Mm -hmm. area, perfect location. But white flight caused the area to become most dilapidated areas in the city and then Public housing, having one of the largest concentrations of public housing on the lakefront, people might see the pictures of Chicago with the historic, tall, 17, 18-story, 20-story high-rise buildings along the lake. Those were the communities that we came into in the 90s. It was deteriorating. Black folk, we had been inhabiting the area since the 60s, and it was becoming a place that was, literally, Mm -hmm. we know the days were numbered in the way in which we fast-forward to what we're fighting against now displacement, gentrification. It was the game was to get that land, clear the land, and Mm -hmm. clear the land and cleanse the land of our people. So Mm -hmm. all the issues that Coco fight are interconnected. So we knew that the land was connected to school policy, which is always bad, which is always top down, which is always delivered on the people who are most impacted, never having a say, always Mm -hmm. having to put back against bad policy. Then, of course, youth violence, just violence in general. And we look at everything as interconnected at Coco, so we don't think one thing happens in a little isolated situation. So we fight on all the issues. And of course, our seniors and our elders are a centerpiece to our work. 
whether it's the person who had a history of being in the civil rights movement or a person who was just grandma and grandpa raising families and generation, they all are welcome in Coco. Mm-hmm. All are at the fight, the forefront. So we're very intergenerational from the rooter to the tutor. So it's important to note, as, as I said before, Jalita mentioned the point around being a threat and that organized black people is a threat because there's a lot of profit in poverty. There's a lot of profit in our incarceration. So there's a definite interest in making sure that we don't get organized. So I want to thank both of you all for introducing yourself. And I want to just go to a quick question. Lots of times people get activism and organizing confused. Uh, So I want to ask you all for a one sentence definition of community organizing. We're going to start with Jalita. Ready? You set? Go. Wow, that's hard. One sentence, that's not fair. But I'll try to sum it up in that. It's a process that involves the people most impacted by an issue, strategizing and developing strategy to impact change in a couple of ways. One way we always talk about is that policy change or law changing, implementing laws or creating new laws. The other is bringing needed improvements or resources to a community. So mm-hmm. organizing is never about the art of just having meetings and talking. It mm-hmm. has to be an end goal. And the other key about it is that it has to be led by the people most impacted. Thank you. All right, Maria, get ready, get set, go. An organizer is a leader that guides uh, people that are directly impacted by the issue to lead for themselves, determine what issues they fight for, and make their voices a powerful force. Okay. So... Let me offer a definition kind of merging with both of you all said that community organizing is working with the people directly impacted to build strategy and build power to win either policy or resources to address a quality of life issue. Can we roll with that? Definitely. Cool. So, but I I want folks, the listeners to hear that even though their words were different, there were a lot of common links. And why is that important? Because what we tend to, to get casted as are activists. And organizing and activism is very different. And it's important to note, you know, an activist picks their issue and then they lift their voice to address that issue. And we're not saying that activism is not important. It is. There are some folks that that's what they do and they do it well. Organizing is different. The activist lifts their voice. The organizer works with the people directly impacted so that they can lift their voice so that they see their own power, so that they see their own ability to lead. Because we know a leader is not just somebody that's on the mic. That might be something a leader may have to do, but a leader is someone that can collaborate. A leader is someone that can be accountable. A leader is someone that can be obedient to a particular discipline. So leadership for us and community organizing for us is not about creating movement superstars. And there will always be a tendency to try to lift up individuals and say, you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. We say, no, a leader is about your spirit. And that's kind of what, you know, Maria was talking about. If you understand that this is your calling, that you're doing God's work, that you're doing holy work when you organize it, it's not about you. It's about, you know, building power with the people directly impacted. Because a lot of our work is to convince us that we can win. Because too often we're told we can't. Everything we see says you can't win, you can't win, you can't win. But we understand that organizers, you know, that's part of our work is to inspire our people to believe we can win. 
and then create those conditions where people begin to build their power. Often that's done by organizing little victories. And as you, you know, people often ask us about the fight for diet. And, and you know, they always talk about the hunger strike. And the point that I make to them is that no, the hunger strike was the culmination of a four-year campaign. And in the beginning of that campaign, people were not ready to do a hunger strike. So people were willing to go to the mayor's office and do a press conference. People were willing to go to the school board meeting and disrupt. And as they began to build their own sense of outrage, because they realized they weren't being heard and they knew that what they were fighting for was right, their sense of outrage grew and their sense of what I'm willing to do grew. And so our tactics began to escalate as people began to realize their own strength, their own power, and the righteousness of what they were fighting for. And it was those little victories. Those little victories could have been, you know, getting the mayor to say, okay, I'm not going to close the school, but it's going to be a charter school. But getting him to say he's going to reopen the school was a little victory. And we escalated from there. So it's important for folks to understand that organizing is an artistic science. And what do we mean by that? Artistic science. Artistic means that you have to be creative. You have to use whatever means necessary to make something happen. Just like if you're cooking a meal and you realize that you don't have enough rice, what do you have to do creatively to make sure that you still have a meal? I mean, that's creativity. That's art. But at the same time, there are principles to organize. There are ways to do this. And we're going to talk about some of those principles or formulas. You know, just like in science, there is a way, right, a formula to cleanse blood. There's a formula for any type of thing you want to do in science. In organizing, there are formulas that we have to do in order to be able to build power. And the first ingredient I want to ask you all about is base building. So, Jalita, if I asked you what is base building, what would you say? And then, Maria, you get ready because you're going to come right after them. Well, I think base building is the process to identify who's and whose you are, like taken from Maria earlier, in that who are your people? Young folk are using that a lot in some of the organizing. Where my people at? So your base has to be the people that are most like you in the sense of, and I want to be clear, I'm not against it, but black folk need to organize black folk primarily. Other ethnic groups coming in our community, organizing us has had effect in some ways, but the most impactful way to motivate somebody is somebody in front of them that looks like them sometimes. I say that to say this. So when we're from that base, we have usually, not always, we know we got some folk who, some of our brothers and sisters who are a little confused. Usually you do more to empathize. You have a historical knowledge of struggle, whether you may call yourself a historian of your people or anything, you have a history because you're from that. So mm. take a minute to just identify. You identify your base, not to make it all complicated by the fact that who cares about this issue the most and who does it impact the most? Mm. Ready to move on it the most. So mm. in base building, you have to first know who your base is. Sometimes mm. we get it twisted. We get confused. So I'll be real clear. In gentrifying communities throughout this country, using Chicago as the microcosm, certain black folk ain't our base. Mm. And I say that because some of us have chosen a particular philosophy and a way that we look at ourselves, that we distinguish ourselves as different. So let's use economics. Let's use a social class that's based on how much money I make. A lot of those folk know who they are, but some, not all folk who make the big bag in communities that are struggling of issues of gentrification have separated themselves 
somewhat mentally because they can't physically. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. saying you can't flip those people later who look just like you, but look down their nose at you and clutch the pearls and click the door when you walk up. Base building is that process of doing more than mobilizing because we can get people out to a meeting when there's been a shooting sometimes, certain type of shooting. We can pack the room for 100 people when certain things happen. At but from that 100, how do you recruit 20 of those folks, 15 of those folks to consistently check in with you? Mm-hmm. Say, I can't make the meeting, but I'm with y'all. That's how the homeless mm-hmm. track works. I can bring back some water. I can do mm-hmm. this, but I got to work during the hours of y'all there. So you, your, you base build with the people who you identify that's most like you, most like the issue, mm-hmm. and base build about who does this issue mostly impact. So when you're base building in schools, the base is not the parents. It's mm-hmm. the young people. Now, parents have a role in things they have to organize about, but most issues in school should be youth-led. I appreciate it your definition of base building and kind of really just kind of letting people know kind of that everybody that look like you ain't your base, right? Now, as black people, we have a common past, present, and future. We have a saying, the only reason you wasn't beat like Rodney King is because you wasn't there. And so looking at it like today, the only reason that you didn't suffer Michael Brown's fate is because you wasn't standing next to him. And so we know that that's a political reality, but often we tend to take stock in the trinkets that the system offers us. And that becomes our political analysis as opposed to, you know, okay, if we want our communities to be safe, we have to build the infrastructure to make sure that we eradicate poverty, to make sure that there are job opportunities, to make sure there's investment in young people, that schools are good. And then if, the, if, the, if those things are in place, then we will produce a certain type of people. But if those things are not there, then we will produce people that are hopeless, that don't have hope, because they've been given no reason to have hope. So that piece is important in understanding base building. Everybody that look like you ain't with you. So imagine if you're Black, and you're not used to anybody asking you what you think and meaning it, right? And then you get a group of people to say, what do you think? And then you come back to them and say, this is our platform, and you read it, and the stuff that you cared about is right there. So that was one of the ways that we was able to take that room full of people and then get a group of people to say, I'm going to work with y'all on that. And that's base building work. You know, often engaging the people directly impacted around the issues they care about, right? And then building that solution with them is one of the ways. I want to add just another thing that we've done for a long time at COCO, and we brought this in the Journey for Justice, is that we do program development. So in other words, we do after school programs, we do food pantries, we do, you know, support groups and all this other stuff. But we did those programs as a way to meet a basic need, to build a sense of trust with our folks. And then for us to learn, how do you build a curriculum and be consistent with it and things like that. And so from that, we built a lot of longstanding relationships where we had cocoa leaders that have been with us 10, 15, 20 years. They've been members because we weren't just the dude that's calling them, talking about, can you get on the bus? We also the person that's done a home visit to their house. We're also the person that have watched out for their child or the child is saying, this is the person that looked out for me since I was six years old. Now I'm 17 and I want to be involved because I know they love me. I know they care about me. So for black people, it's important to figure out how do you meet a basic need as you're working with people so that you build a real sense of trust and you remove some of the obstacles that we often have to being involved. If you're a parent and you know from 3.30 to 6.30, my baby's with Coco or my baby's with Step Up Louisiana, 
and I ain't got to worry about it. I know they're going to do right by my child. They take my child to college tours. They look out for my baby. They feed my baby. I know this. Then you build a sense of trust and you remove a fear that people often have. So it's been a combination of that type of stuff. So Maria, why don't you give us a story, Sister, some of the base building work that you've done with Step Up Louisiana, a good example. The one base building moment we had was when we did a presentation about issues in school transportation. One of our leaders composed a video just of documenting children waiting at the bus stop in the dark at 5 a.m. And we did this community meeting uh, in front of over 100 people. And so many people were just swept up in a moment that they just wanted to do something. And um, one thing we knew is where we had the community meeting, we knew that that was the people where they were at. You know, that was our people. So going back to what Brother Jali said earlier, you have to know who your people are. Certainly, and and it really uh, gives you proper direction and how to move. And, Mm -hmm. you know, after we signed up maybe about 10 people from there, we just encouraged them to do some relational organizing, spreading the word about what they've seen, spreading the video, talking to people about what they've heard and pulling more people that way. And now we have a core base of about 40 Mm -hmm. parents and we have general outreach to about 250 parents just based off of relational organizing and spreading the word. And as our escalation continues to grow, especially since we built out a grassroots coalition called Erase the Board, um, we really uh, build out a pretty strong base of people so far. And some of the people that are coming to the table for the coalition are just showing up for that one piece, but we hope to keep them engaged as far as like a sustaining relationship. Teach. Now, I'll bear witness, we were having a conference in New Orleans, a mini conference, and um, this is when the vote was coming up around McDonough 35, you know, so not only did we bring a busload of people from around the country, but the room was packed with people from New Orleans, with Step Up members and folks like that. So it was really powerful to see the folks from New Orleans mobilized and informed around the fact that school choice is a scam, it is a hustle. And then that's why I think ultimately, sister, y'all will win because you all are doing the work to really politicize the public. And so I think the charter accountability tactic that you are, or strategy that you all are using is the right way to go. And then also working to spread sustainable community schools around other parts of Louisiana as to stop the flow of charter schools. I also think it's brilliant. So it's an important work. And I want to say this to everybody, you know, the case in New Orleans is important because it would be real easy just to throw your hands up and just say, that's it. And I think the work of organizers, me and Jalita have a mentor, a brother by the name of Baba from Ishii and Patanishi. And he taught both of us this quote. He said, we have to be bold and daring. We have to push possibilities to the limit. But the only limitations we have are the ones that we accept. And we believe that, you know, you have to look in the eyes of your people and see what we can be, who we really are, not who this society says we are. But the one thing that I like to really tap into now, because you all have both spoken to it, is how do you center racial justice in your work? And the reason I'm asking that question is because, you know, one of the things that's taken from us as Black people is our identity. And once they take our identity, the oppressor determines our purpose because we don't know who we are. So if we don't know who we are, how do we know why we are? 
And then once they take our purpose, they also chart our direction. So Maria, why don't you lead us in that? Why do you center racial justice in your work? And I know you've had some struggles. You know, I ain't telling you to put all your business in the street, but I know that you've had some, you've had to climb some hurdles in regards to making sure that people respected your racial justice lens. So why don't you share that with us? You know, Step Up Louisiana is a multi-generational and a multi-racial organization. And, you know, I always tell people those things sound cute, but the process is painful. <laughs> and uh, I struggle in co-leadership. We have tense conversation at times with myself and my co-director, Ben, who's a white guy and I'm a black woman. And, you know, he's also from Maryland. So he moved down to New Orleans to go to school. I'm from Lake Charles, Louisiana. Bloodline started in Southwest Louisiana. And I've had ancestors who were slaves on this land. You know, I'm homegrown. So there's Mm -hmm. also a component I bring to the table, not only of being a black woman, but of someone of cultural competence and understanding the historical context and the thread of how our political landscape is developed to this day. You know, he has a strong understanding as well and brings strong skill set and insight. And our skill sets and strategies and thoughts together have really been powerful. But really affirming our identity, I really feel like I bring that piece to in our partnership, you know. Being a, a racial justice organization, I was very adamant about defining that racial justice analysis of ourselves and really making sure that we center leadership of those who are directly impacted. And I had to tell him, I said, to be honest, these are Black people issues. <laughs> I had to say that in a meeting and just bluntly one time, like I just can't hold back sometimes. And I just had to say, these are Black people issues. So if you go uh, try to work with people who are directly impacted. You are working with people who are black, black mm-hmm. leadership. How are we centering black leadership in this work? How are we emboldening black woman leadership? It's so many layers to this. It really mm-hmm. is. And it's really the practice that makes it transformational. And mm-hmm. I always tell people who come to Step Up Louisiana, you have to be willing to be transformed in this work. And that goes towards white folks, uh, Latino folks, black folks, and, and all, because, mm. and I've seen transformation only within my parents, one parent in particular, uh, Tashara, she, she mm. was right there with me signing up our first parent member drive. She mm. was with me from the very beginning, and to just see her progression, I've seen her transformation just in how she speaks and tells her story, and how she continues to be a very viable force in speaking out for the rights of all parents. And she mm-hmm. says that I have two children in school, but I'm fighting for everybody's kids. And I've also seen a level of growth from my partner, Ben, just as his development as a young man, but also coming to wrestle with his whiteness at times and then pointing stuff out and knowing how we work as a team. Because guess what? There's a benefit to working together. Whenever we do indirect action, he's always there. And when the police shows up, who's talking to the police? I'm not talking to the police. Ben is. Mm-hmm. But see, Maria, I want to say that he would not be in that place if you would not have stood firm on a lot of the issues that, that and a lot of the issues that you all had in the beginning. I give him credit for being humble, mm-hmm. but, you, but you understand what I'm saying. The point I'm making, uh, family, is that too often as black people, we give our allegiance too easily. And when we give our allegiance, we don't demand enough. 
in order to have our partnership, in order to get our vote. And so one of the things that we're learning now, and I know as we've talked, sister, our, our piece was we got to raise the bar. If you want to be in partnership with us, you're going to have to respect these principles. You're going to have to respect the fact mm-hmm. that we're going to be in leadership. If not, then we can't work together. And the fact that you, you, you stood firm on that, I think, has played a major role in your co-director beginning to shift his perspective and, and, and his understanding. So I'm going to just give you credit for that. So, Brother Jalita, why do you think it's important to center racial justice in our work? I think the thing about centering racial justice for me and from our experience and the folk that I've worked with, it comes down to we have to always be reminded of something called Kuji Chagulia from the Seven Principles of Kwanzaa, which means self-determination, in that we always have people speaking for us as people of color and as Black folk speaking about us, speaking to us. But we need to flip that script and remember we have a right to self-determination. So when we have understanding of that, then a lot of the stuff about racial justice is just people have to watch how we roll. People have to just watch our smoke because we don't have to explain or apologize or even get into a lot of the side distractions that come up when other folk are in our mix. When I say that, I mean often allies or people who pretend to be allies or really sometimes think they're doing well end up having struggles with their issues and it comes to our space. So you're in my community saying you want to help organize my people, but your racial issues, your your internalized racism and your other issues, your white privilege often shows its ugly head in different ways, and then we end up being distracted. Our movement, our organizing, our efforts end up getting distracted because sometimes we have to go through the whole process of dealing with allies who sometimes get off track. I'm being nice. But you center it because you know you have a right to do this, you have a right to speak for yourself, and you center that in your actions being about what you are there for, which is your people. So when other folk are often in the mix, you can work hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, back to back with other cultures and other races. But when you're unclear on who you are and your right to have your own voice and your right to speak in the way you speak, mm-hmm. our people feel comfortable coming as they are. It helps right. that uncle come up to a board meeting and speak his, speak his truth as mm-hmm. well as he wants to speak it, even if he's not speaking the King's English. So all of the stuff that we go through is internalized racism we're dealing with, but a lot of times it's undue pressure put on our people and our movement by outsiders, and I'm going to say it, outsiders struggling with their own stuff or not struggling with it. Teacher, man, I hope the audience is feeling this and appreciative of of just the depth and, and the gems that you all are dropping during this conversation. It's a saying from the Black Power Movement. It says, Kazi is the blackest of all. And that means the work that you do says how black you are. And the reason why I'm I've got chills as you all are talking is because you are you all are speaking from lived experience. You ain't speaking from theory, you're not speaking about just simply what you read from a book, but you're speaking about what you've done out in these streets. So I want to commend both of you all on that. Um, and just to you know Jalita mentioned Kuchichagalia and I and I just got all types of images as both of you all were talking. So Kuchichagalia says to define name and speak for ourselves instead of being defined, named, and spoken for by others. So I want people just to reflect on that, how often people define us, name us, and speak for us, instead of Black people defining ourselves, naming ourselves, and speaking for ourselves, instead of being defined, named, and spoken for by others. 
So I know we're running out of time. And we have one. I want to thank you all both again. We have one question. I think it's from a sister from Detroit. Hi, I'm Dana from Detroit, Michigan, and I'm a member of Detroit Life Coalition and Michigan We Choose. So currently, Detroit is experiencing a loss of black and brown residents, much like many areas in New York. So I'd like to ask your guests to share a few best practices regarding grassroots organizing around issues such as culturally relevant education and creating pipelines for future minority educators. In New Orleans, right after Katrina, it was really disaster capitalism that really was a driving force to enable the proliferation of charters in New Orleans and to have over 103 schools unconstitutionally be closed because we found a, a phrase in the uh, the law, revised statute 173983 in the Louisiana Constitution about charter schools. They were supposed to have a vote amongst mm-hmm. the teachers, the parents, and they were supposed to use that process to make a decision about closing that traditional public school and, and transitioning it over to a charter. And they did it to 103 schools. And when I make this uh, information known, you know, a lot of people are actually shook. They didn't know that. They were like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is actually a lawsuit, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're going to get our payback. And right now our strategy is litigation. It's not a an immediate solution, but it definitely is going to be our course of justice. What we can do in the immediate time, though, is continue to promote the solution, which is sustainable community schools and the thing is, another immediate fix is how do we fund it? And mm-hmm. in other parts of the state, which is where I'm from, Lake Charles, Louisiana, Southwest, and also in Baton Rouge, an hour away uh, west from New Orleans, these areas are heavily populated by industrial plant companies, oil and glass, petrochemical companies. And Louisiana actually doesn't deny any tax exemption of an application uh, submitted by these plant companies. The problem is that Louisiana as a whole, perception is reality for us in in terms of our political analysis. And what we see and what is perceived is even if it's strong propaganda, we believe it. You know, you're telling people, well, we're coming here and we're providing all these jobs, this and that, and we're actually pumping money into the community. But, you know, you're walking away with over a course of 10 years, $2.5 billion in your pocket that you should be giving to the community. Like, imagine what that could do to failing schools in low-income Black communities in North Lake Charles or in Lafayette or in Baton Rouge. And recently, uh, we put the pressure on those school boards in Baton Rouge to deny Exxon's tax application for an an exemption for a tax break. And uh, now they're trying to shift the narrative, but we're in the fight now. But divesting from the industrial tax exemption program in Louisiana is a way to really invest in in public education because our our schools are not fully funded and they have been Mm -hmm. hacking away at our budget for years. Just to be clear, so what you all are doing is you're saying instead of giving the tax breaks, to these companies and giving revenue to them, you want that revenue to be redirected back into the schools. So I want folks to understand, you heard us say sustainable community schools. When we say sustainable, we mean part of the infrastructure for working class black and brown families. So when you have a bunch of school closings and you have charter schools that can pick and choose the children they want, what you tend to see all over the country is black people leave. Because if their child can't go to their charter down the street, they're not sending their child across the city 
to a school that may or may not be safe. And then there's another contributing factor to that, and that's the loss of affordable housing. And so we're going to have a show called The Purge of Black People from Urban Spaces. That is coming up. But that's an important point to note, that school privatization is a driver of black flight from several urban cities. Every city, every city, every city that has been hit by school privatization and the loss of affordable housing, Chicago, Oakland, Detroit, New Orleans, D.C., Cleveland, Philly, New York, Pittsburgh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Denver, Colorado. We've seen the black population plummet. And in many of these spaces now, a lot of black people live in the suburbs of those cities, or we actually migrate, we actually are displaced to places that we never lived, like Iowa. To put this in context, in the year 2000, black people were 52% of the population here. In 2018, we're 32 or 33% of the population. It ain't no gradual decrease. It's not a migration. It's a purge. We're being pushed out of these cities. In New Orleans, we are less than 50% of the population today. In America's most African city, where we used to be about 65% of the population, we are less than 50% today. So it's important to make that point. Look, with that, I just want to say uh, thank you all for this thought-provoking session that we've had today. Don't sweat the technique, the artistic science and community organizing. I want to ask everybody to spread the word about this podcast. I'm your host, Brother G2 Brown. You all can reach us on Facebook on our Journey for Justice Alliance page. You can reach us at Twitter at J4J underscore USA. Uh, those are the best ways to catch us. And you can also hit our website, www.j4jalliance.com. We're going to close, to me, one of the most unheralded lyricists that came in the early 2000s, a brother by the name of J. Rudy Damager. J. Rudy Damager was produced by DJ Premier from Gangstar fame, and he had a song, an album called The Sun Rises in the East, a conscious MC. And he had this one song that is one of my favorites, man. It's just so creative. And it's called You Can't Stop the Prophet. And with that, I'm going to say tuta onana. Until we meet again, let us know what you think about the podcast. Spread the word, man. We want to make sure that uh, we are spreading this gospel all over the world. All right? So we appreciate y'all, man. Peace. I leap over lies in a single pound. The black prophet one day I got struck by knowledge of self. It gave me super scientifical powers. Now I run through the ghetto, battling my arch nemesis, Mr. Ignorance. He's been trying to take me out since the days of my youth. He feared this day will come. I'm hiding his trail, but sometimes he slips away because he has an army. They always give me trouble, mainly hatred, jealousy, and envy. They attack me. They think they got me. But I use my super science and I twist all three. I see sparks over that building. They're shooting at me. I dip, do a backflip. Then I hit them in the heart with sharp steel bookmarks. Ignorance hates when I drop it. But no matter what he do, he can't stop the profit. Yo, profit, yo, profit. Come here real quick. Yo, I just saw Ignorance downtown. Let me put you on. Word, he down there bugging. He got them ill and out. They shooting everything out. Let's continue the saga. Mad, mad drama. I met this chick. She said she knew where Ignorance was at. I said, where? She said, downtown. He had babies having babies and young niggas selling crack. 
I think the bitch is lying, it's a setup, I can smell it. But ignorance is running rampant. Aye, baby, show me the exact spot. Meet me at Hoyt and Skimmerhorn at three on the dock. So I hops up on the A train, I'm being followed. My seventh sense senses danger. I turn around, it's anger. And he bought a marble on, it's the same old song. This bitch